Let's just bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, as I fill in for James this morning, I just pray and ask for your Holy Spirit to be present here to bless these people, Father, to bless me. We come hungry for your word, and you've promised that you'd fill those who hunger and thirst after you. So we believe and we hope that we will not leave here um, unfilled. May your word resonate with what we're experiencing in our own personal lives and give us the direction and wisdom and hope we need. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan met his Muslim princess when he was 14 years old. Her name was Mumtaz Mahal, and he fell in love. He married her five years later in the year 1612. And 20 years later, unfortunately, she died giving birth to their 14th child. My grandmother had 18, and she died young. But the 14th child, and he, in his grief, decided that he wanted to build a huge commemoration of his, of her life and his devotion to her. And he built a building, and he named it after her. Any of you know what it is? If her name was Mumtaz Mahal. So he built the Taj Mahal, no small feat, a most magnificent building as a symbol of his love and devotion to his dead wife. And it took 20 years to build that building. Can you imagine? 20,000 workers were involved in it. It cost $1 million at the time, and it's estimated that in today's money, it would equal to $1 billion. It took 1,000 elephants to bring in the marble from all over India and Central Asia. 28 kinds of precious and semi-precious stones were used in the building. And every single year, 2 to 3 million people go and visit the Taj Mahal. Said in Maryland, did you used to go see the Taj Mahal? Incredible. Is it magnificent? Yeah. I'm sure it's much more awe than even in the pictures. Um, yeah, to think of what he, the reason why he had that built. It reminds me, it makes me think of something that Rick would do. You love your kids so much, let me build them something, you know. Um, so the Taj Mahal. But there was another magnificent building that was erected as a symbol of love and devotion, not to a dead wife, but to a living God. And that was King David's dream, was to build an amazing temple for God. And yet he was denied that opportunity, but it was given to his son. And as he was kind of handing down that dream to his son, he let his son know how he prepared for it. And this is what he said. Indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord, 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond measure, for it is so abundant. I prepared timber and stone also, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, woodsmen and stonecutters and all types of skillful men for every kind of work of gold and silver and bronze and iron. There is no limit. Arise and begin working, and the Lord be with you. So I did a little bit of research to see how much gold and silver are we really talking about here. He talks about all the talents of silver, one million talents, and so forth. So I did a little bit of equating, and I found that his 108,000 talents of gold would be an inconceivable 8 million pounds of gold, which would be worth $194 billion dollars. 
Okay, that's just the gold. Then there was one million talents of silver, and that would be an equally mind-boggling 76 million pounds of silver, 20, over $22 billion worth of silver that went into this building. Probably if you and I had been sitting in on the committee, we would have been like, ah, oh, that's too much money or whatever. But, but David didn't think so. David, David threw it all in for God's work. And that wasn't counting the metal, the bronze, the iron, the ivory, the cedar wood that he had without limit and in so much abundance. So extrapolating from all of that, uh, researchers have tried to assess how much money did it take to actually build Solomon's temple. And it would have been half a trillion dollars in today's money, something we can't even imagine. It's completely unimaginable for one building. It took seven years to build. And remember, we're told that it was built in silence because all the cutting of the stones and everything was done everywhere else. And then they would bring it there. And what an honor to God, I think, that um, building was. So beautiful, unrivaled splendor, garnished with the most precious stones and spacious courts and literally wallpapered with gold. We, again, can't imagine that. Um, and yet the most precious thing in that building was the Ark of the Covenant. It was brought in the day of its dedication, of the building's dedication. And it was so precious because it had the Ten Commandments in it, those two stones, and then um, they were seeking for God's presence. And God didn't let them down. As the priests brought in that Ark and it was placed in the most holy place, the Bible tells us that it was filled with smoke and it was filled with God's presence. And he, he let them know God showed up. For that amazing dedication. But what I want to um, point out is Solomon's prayer. So at this time, Solomon, um, de- all the people come to dedicate this temple that's worth, you know, half a trillion dollars. And the king is standing, the Bible says, with hands outstretched to God. So this is how he's praying. And he's, his hands are, are outstretched. And as he's outstretched to God, he's giving the people um, what he sees as the vision for this building. He's communicating them what's going to take place in this building in this building through his prayer. And this is what he sees taking place there. It's where forgiveness would be experienced. It's where relationships would be restored. It would be a place of learning what is good and blessing. It'd be a place to turn to in times of famine and pestilence. It would be a place of refuge, a place of compassion, a house of prayer. And I love this last part. It would be a place of returning to God after failure and defeat. I think that's so powerful. A lot of times we want to run from church when we've experienced personal failure and defeat. And yet Solomon was saying, no, this was the place where, um, where we would, we would come to, God's people would come to. But then verse 41, and I actually want to read this verse. He prays this prayer. He says that there are going to be foreigners. There are going to be people who aren't Jews, who aren't Christians, if we could equate it to today in thinking about um, people coming to God's temple today, who are not of your people Israel, but will come from a far country for your name's sake. And this will be why they come. For they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. So three things that they're going to hear about that are going to attract them to this building. And it's not going to be the gold, and it's not going to be um, how much money went into this. It's going to be because they've heard of three things. God's great name, his character, who he is, and his strong hand. And do you know that uh, today people measure, doctors measure, like they try to measure how long people will live based on their grip strength. So 
So a strong hand is a sign of longevity and um, endurance. And a stretched out arm. And I want you to picture this stretched out arm um, as a visual of God's body language towards us. Communication is 7% words. Isn't that something? It's 38% tonality. That means how I say something actually is going to communicate to you more than what I'm saying. But then a whopping 55% of my body language does the majority of the communication. So God has given us his word, and we can read that. But he's also, I think, put in there his tonality and also his body language. And that's what I want you to see in this stretched out arm that we see um, him um, positioning himself in. So Exodus 6-6 six, six is the first place I found where God's outstretched arm is referred to. And it says, I'm the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm. After crossing the Red Sea on dry land, the children of Israel acknowledged this fact when they sang a song. Remember that song that they sang in Exodus 15, the song of Moses? And these are the words to that song. We don't have the melody, but it said, Your right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed in pieces the enemy by the greatness of your arm. In Deuteronomy 5.15, Moses was uh, reminding the people of the Ten Commandments, and he's reciting them to them, and he's reminding them specifically how God came down on Mount Sinai and telling them about the Fourth Commandment, and in the midst of this Fourth Commandment, and telling them, man, remember, keep the Sabbath day. It's really important to God, and it's important to you, and this is why. And he says this, Remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt. And that the Lord your God brought you out of there through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. And therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Somehow the Sabbath was to mean something to us about reminding us how God has delivered us with his powerful arm. This is how God rescued his people from the land of the enemy was with his outstretched arm. And I think it was to be a motivating power for why we would come and worship, why we would stand and praise, why we would sing with our hearts out, knowing what God has done for us. And that the same power that he rescued other people with and with us with yesterday is the same power he's going to rescue us with today and tomorrow and in the future. So why should we remember? And Deuteronomy 7, I won't read all these verses to you, but... But in Deuteronomy, again, Moses is trying to tell them why they should remember. And he says, because you're going to have future battles. It's not over with. Um, Yeah, God brought you out of Egypt, and he brought you to this place, but there are so many more battles in front of you, and the giants and the enemy is going to look so big that you're going to feel like, ah, what am I doing here? We're going to feel overwhelmed and scared and feel like it's too much and that we can't handle it. And he says, at that moment, remember. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt, the mighty hand and the stretched out arm by which the Lord brought you out. And we're to remember it because it worked for them and God was powerful for them. But we're to remember it because he's going to do it again. And arms are strong, not because um, they look strong. You hear about those surgeries where people want to look strong so they have those implants put all over their body. Um, That's not strength, right? They look strong. But a strong arm isn't for looks. It's because it's strong because it keeps extending itself, and it keeps extending itself over and over again. And that's why God's arm is so powerful. 
David said, We've heard. Our fathers have told us what work you did in their days in the times of old, for they did not get the land in possession by their own sword. Neither did their own arm save them, but it was your right hand, and it was your arm. That was in Psalms 44. And so David's recounting this, and the story was to live on and on and on. And because strong arms are strong, and we were to put our faith and our trust in how capable um, and how continuous God's strong arm would be for us, especially in the midst of our enemy's attacks. So Isaiah 59.1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. It's nothing, nothing beyond his reach. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your right hand. High is your right hand. And I love this picture in Isaiah 63 when Jesus himself is wrestling in the garden in Gethsemane and he's tortured on Calvary um, with thoughts of being forsaken and he's going through the ultimate um, enemy attack. And what did he cling to? What was it that got him through this? And I think this is a really cryptic picture. It's in Isaiah 63. And someone's asking... Okay, picture this. Someone's asking Jesus this. Why are your clothes stained red? Why do your clothes look like you've been at work in the wine press? And then he answers, I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there was none with me. And I looked, and there was none to help me. And I wondered why there was no one to hold me up. So therefore, mine own arm brought salvation to me. Nowhere else could he find the strength Nothing else is powerful as his own arm. In Isaiah 59, the prophecy of Christ, and he saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no, excuse me, no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. God himself knows in times of his distress and his own anguish, when the weight of the world was on him, that there was nothing and no one else but his own arm to bring redemption. And there is nothing more powerful that you and I can cling to. Nothing more sure, nothing more steadfast and true. God's arm is the strongest force in the universe. Do you believe that today? Even more significant than the strength of this arm is its position towards us. And I think that is super beautiful. Romans 10.21 says, All day long I have stretched forth my hands and to a disobedient and gainsaying people. And that, that I was thinking, what's that gainsaying mean? People who are refusing me. All day long, this is my posture towards them. All day long, I'm reaching forth, extending my arm. My arm is outstretched to people who don't even acknowledge me. In Isaiah 9, and I want to read these verses as well. Um, these are a little more challenging to understand. But when I um, finally understood them, I was like, wow, God is so amazing. What an amazing picture of him. Isaiah 9 and verse, we're going to, God repeats something like three or four times in this section of scripture. And I just want to highlight it. So at Isaiah 9 verse 12, and in the context in this like a poem. It's talking about how God's people have strayed away from them, and because they've strayed away from them, all the enemies are going to be attacking them, and they're going to be devouring Israel with open mouth. And God says, for all this, or Isaiah is saying, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And then in verse 17, um, it's saying how God won't have any joy in their young men because they're hypocrites, and every mouth is speaking folly. And then it says, for all of this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. 
And then in verse 21, it says, Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, and together they're going to be against Judah. So he's describing a lot of infighting and lack of unity and backbiting within God's people. And then it says again, for all of this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And that phrase didn't mean anything until I looked up the word anger. And do you know what the word for anger is in the original? Has anyone ever looked that up? It's face. I don't know why the people who um, took the original and wrote it into English put anger. But it's his face. So now put that word into this phrase. Even though, despite the fact that we are infighting and that we've turned away from God and now we're reaping all the consequences of our own choices and we are a mess for all of this, his face is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Did that change those verses for you? Isn't that powerful? Doesn't that give you hope? Give me a lot of hope. At the time of Israel's greatest apostasy, I want you to register God's body language towards his people, his body position towards them, and that was with a stretched out hand. So I want to read this quote. Many have become corrupted in faith. Corrupted in principle, many have dishonored God and sold themselves to sin, and in word and deed have helped others on in the strange paths they've chosen, until they do not know what pure religion is. They've sacrificed faith for worldly favor, and are leavened with that which is opposed to righteousness. At first, they felt some compunction of conscience, but they refused to turn back, and now hardness of heart is preparing them for hopeless apostasy and the judgments of God. The appeals of their Savior have been resisted and his mercy abused. His provisions of redeeming love made by infinite sacrifice have been rejected. His heart yearns over them. His hand has been outstretched to save, but they turned away, sliding his invitations of mercy. And yet, his hand is stretched out still. For our Savior made provision that all who receive him shall be given power to become the sons of God. How much rejection can you guys take? I don't take rejection really well, especially from people that I care a lot about. But God's hand is stretched out still in spite of all of that. It's stretched out, and it can reach you. It can reach your children. It can reach every single situation that you're struggling with and dealing with, whether it's your business or your relationships or um, your spiritual life. God is so big and so powerful. God's hand is stretched out, and he will not bring it back to himself until it's accomplished what he set out to do, till the enemy has been vanquished and victory has been accomplished, and he needs no one to bolster it up. Moses, right? His hands were outstretched on behalf of others, but there was no way he could hold those hands up. He definitely needed someone else, others to come up alongside him, but not our God. God's hand was the only thing, even on Calvary, that could um, bring redemption. Revelation tells us that the redeemed will sing a song, a song of Moses and the Lamb, a new song that no one else has ever sung before. It's going to be amazing. How we're all going to learn it at the same time, I don't know, but it's going to be pretty cool. The angels won't be able to sing with us, not the unfallen worlds. And Psalm 98 says, Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy holy arm have gotten him the victory. And that song that we sing in heaven is the song of Moses and the Lamb. And what were the songs of Moses and the Lamb? These are the words. 
Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed in pieces the enemy. By the greatness of your arm, they shall be still a stone. O Lord, till the people pass over which you have purchased, till they pass over, you shall bring them to the mountain of your inheritance. Sometimes we have so much doubt. Ah, am I going to make it? Is God going to save my children? How is he going to get me out of this situation? This is the song we can start learning now, I think, that God is more than capable of what we put into his hands, and we will sing this song of how he brought us through to the other side. So in Job 40, verse 9, God asked Job a question. It's a cool question. He says to Job, Job, do you have an arm like God? (laughs) Do you? Do you have an arm like God? No. Job may have uh, been working out. He may have had some strong arms. Actually, by the time he did this, probably not. He'd been sick for a long time. His arms were probably pretty shriveled. There's no way the strongest of us have an arm like God. There is much that the arm of the Lord still is outstretched to accomplish. He wants so much to accomplish it through us. Looking for people who will be strong because they grab a hold of the strong for strength. Who will remember, will remember the power of God and will pass it on. The world needs to see the arm of the Lord, its strength and its position towards them. That nothing is too hard, nothing is too sinful, nothing is too dirty. It's been stained in the wine press. It's already stained. It's not going to get any worse by helping you, getting you out of your muck. This is the message that the world needs to hear, and I think this is the message that's going to draw his his people that are out there to his sanctuary, to his temple, to him. To go forward without stumbling. This is a quote. I love this. To go forward without stumbling, we must have the assurance that a hand all-powerful will hold us up, and an infinite pity be exercised towards us if we fall. Show us your arm, O Lord. Uh, When Kara was a little girl and James started working out, he'd been really thin, and he decided, I need to start gaining weight, get some muscle on me. We were all happy for that day, especially me. But Kara didn't mind it, too. And she heard when James would come home from work, she would ask him, "Um, Dad, I want to see your arm. So he'd roll up his sleeve, and he'd show her his arm. She tells me the reason why is because she likes to see the mm, veins pop out, you know, so she'd always, and she'd like, might have natural veins. She'd always come and be poking my veins. I always thought because she liked to see muscle. She liked to see maybe some strength. And I think that each one of us wants to see our God in that way. Show us your arm, God. Show us what you're capable of. Um, you will not let us down. Isaiah 52.10 says, the Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. Can you picture him rolling up his sleeves? He's going to make it bare. He's going to show him how strong he is. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And the last promise, Deuteronomy 33, verse 27 says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he shall thrust out the enemy from before you. Amen.